Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill, and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. And today's guest is Sir Stephen Wilkinson. Stephen is an investor in small and medium-sized enterprises and a leadership coach for visioning and creator of financial fluency courses for entrepreneurs. He's a writer, a trail walker, a libertarian, a Christian, a husband and father of four. And I think what you he has to say will really interest you today. So, Stephen, welcome to the show, or perhaps I Thank should you. say Sir Stephen, welcome no, to the show. Stephen will do. <laughs> I don't know how many sirs there are uh, where you come from, but uh, I imagine it's quite an honor to be uh, it is. a sir. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, today, I really want to get into some of the challenges and a little bit of your background about how you got into this, but I know you work at the intersection of finance and leadership for small businesses. And I know you've been involved with an organization that I really respect, which is Small Giants, created by Bo Burlingham. He's a popular writer on Inc. Magazine, and he wrote a book called Small Giants. And I, it's, a, it's a huge like uh, thing in the entrepreneur world. So tell us a little bit maybe about your background with that, maybe about a little bit more about your background in, in finance. Yeah, yeah I, I will, gladly. So well, thank, firstly, thank you very much for having me on your show. And I'm glad we, um, we have the occasion to, to chat and meet through our mutual friend, John Janch, um, yeah. on the, when he, he uh, launched his new book um, recently. Yep. Shout out to John Jantz, uh, author of Duct Tape Marketing and uh, and several other books. I think this one's called The Ultimate Marketing Engine. It's a really good one. Yeah. It's a really good. It's a, I, I met John a few years ago, literally just before the, um, the COVID shutdown. And we were both speaking at an event in Louisiana, an entrepreneurship um, mm -hmm. retreat. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to know him there. He's a really, he's a great guy. And along with uh, Mike Michalowicz as well, who's another great author for small business yeah profit first uh, very uh, well respected in the entrepreneur and small business community absolutely absolutely mm -hmm. so that but you can tell from that sort of group of uh, of names that we've just sort of thrown up that's the space that i'm in it's the right. the, 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 the that 
large pool of of owners of small and medium-sized businesses, mm-hmm. which is a very um, I'm going to say underserved area in the two disciplines that I think that I bring to the table. Number one is financial fluency. Mm-hmm. And effectively, that's how I started coaching and, and, and talking to leaders coming out of a restructuring investment business, you know, buying companies that were that were in need of significant restructuring or possibly on the brink of insolvency or or administration where all the damage has already been done and the owner is starting to lose control of the business entirely mm-hmm. because his financing partners, the bank, or just legal requirements are forcing him to, to sell the business and and do tough. something else with it. Tough. Usually yeah. very tough, very, yeah. very tough. And, and I've had years' worth of conversations with business owners, mostly in Germany, because that's where I spent 25 years of my career in in Germany, Germany is, an, is a very interesting place. It has a completely different business and finance culture to the United States or the UK, where I come from. Um, much more long-term in thinking. The Germans are much, much more conservative when it comes to business finance. They're not mm-hmm. nearly as – I wouldn't they, – they tend to think generationally and in terms of legacy business. Right. You know, they, 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 that has a lot to do with their history. Um, but finance is one of those areas which is not part of the sort of normal repartee of a of a sort of small medium sized business owners. And I originally thought that that was just a German thing, but I've realised over the last few years, particularly the more I spend time in the states talking to U.S. business owners, and through my uh, affiliation with a number of different networks, the small giants is one of them. Birthing of Giants, which has nothing to do with them, mm-hmm. um, is another one based in New yep. York. I think you yep. know that organization. Yeah, Vern, too. Vern Harnish was involved with that. I think uh, so. Teaching at it. So, yeah. Th- what I've realized is that discomfort and a lack of understanding around the point of finance and how to read a balance sheet and why it matters and and how to use numbers to tell the story of the business is. It seems to be a universal issue. It doesn't matter whether you're in Germany or in Italy or in the US or in Argentina or in Japan. It doesn't make any difference. There is a, a real lack of understanding around the language of business. There is a lack of fluency around the language of business. And that's a pity because I've always maintained that the very best, the very best strategic advisor that any business owner could have is in fact their own financial reporting if only they could talk to it properly well i so, think it's a huge issue for me and i i don't think that there uh there's i don't think there's a client that i work with that i don't look at the veracity of their financial statements which you can pretty much tell by the i find i can tell by the presentation of them and the organization of them like you know uh, like are they I don't look to see if they have a good chart of accounts, but I look to see how many line items they have. And are they putting uh, operating expenses that are really costs of goods sold into uh, the, um, you know, above the gross profit line? And do they understand the relationship of, of these things? Do they look at their labor costs and material costs and really understand it as a percentage of their income? And, and that's just the P&L statement, you know, 
then you get to the balance sheet. And I, I don't even think most small businesses even understand it, look at it, pay any the attention best, to it. The, just, the, best, yeah. the best comment that I've ever heard from a small business owner when he looked at his balance sheet is, why do I need that? I didn't pay for it. It's <laughs> great. Well, and they don't really understand it. And then, you know, if you want to really understand the value of your business over time, you have to look at the balance sheet over time to see, you know, is it accumulating in, in value, in equity? Um, or, you know, are, are you just, you know, what are you doing? And you'll get a quick lesson when you go to the bank and try and get financing, you know. Maybe. Well, yes, yes, and no. But the bank won't sit down and explain no. to you why they are judging you the way that they are. Right. You know, you th- you think you've got a great business, and this happens most dramatically at inflection points in growth. Mm-hmm. There's a um, you know, when 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 the business owner is growing rapidly and is starting to need larger and larger amounts of working capital. He's got more and more of his money tied up in in accounts receivables or in inventory if he's a manufacturing business. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't understand. He's looking at his P&L. He's saying, I'm making money, but he doesn't know where it is. He has right. no idea why he's feeling right. poor, right. and yet his accounts are telling him he's making money. And that, that one point at where the businessman, the owner thinks he's doing a really good job and if the bank was prepared to lend him 500,000 two years ago, well, then they've got to be prepared to lend me 2 million now when I sure. really need it. Because look, it's yeah. working. Yeah. What they don't understand is that their risk profile is is deteriorating every single day that they're growing at 10 or 15 or 20%. Um, and that a lot of the financing that they need is typically not financing that a bank can give them, but nobody explains it to them that way. Yeah, so, and a, a lot of this could be explained with the cash flow statement. And unfortunately, the cash flow statement, at least in the United States, I think that's GAAP compliant, is not easily understood or and is rarely looked at. I, I don't actually know a small business owner that gets uh, a balance sheet and a cash flow statement every month. So, um, well, I think there's an issue with the fact that there are two different interpretations of cash flow statements or, mm-hmm. or cash flow report. When a businessman or a business owner is, is, is talking about a cash flow report, he's talking about a forward looking 12 week right. cash in, cash out. Right, right. What is what, what you know, liquid liquidity man, liquidity management tool? Exactly. When a when when a financial person is talking about a cash flow statement, they are looking to see where the money where the where's the money going in the business up to the point at which I'm examining it. Right. And the cash flow statement is is fascinating for investors because it tells them or financing partners how much of the money being made is actually going to to future-proof the business, mm-hmm. how much is going into real long-term investments because that tells you how much confidence the business has in its own future and what it's doing about it. So the um, the cash flow statement from an investor or a financing perspective has a completely different is a completely different thing to the one that the business owner thinks he's talking about when he's talking about cash flow. Yeah, because the investor will look at the cash flow state, that cash flow statement, and understand where did the money actually go, 
Did it yeah. get, you know, did it increase your your working capital, your your current assets? Did it, you know, did did it go into inventory? Did it go into uh, uh, equipment or, or long term uh, expenses? So I, I think it's really instructive, and yet, you know, it's just rarely looked at. It's rarely looked at, and be, and even if it is looked at, and if you know, QuickBooks will produce you one. And it'll produce you one in the normal schedule with operational cash flow, financing, and investment cash flow. But it doesn't. Most people don't use it because it's it's not giving them the cash flow information that they need to run their business from a liquidity perspective. Right. But right. you originally asked a question about the small giants community, which yes. is one of my absolutely favourite networks or communities that I'm involved in, and it's an amazing it's an amazing group of entrepreneurs with some wonderful people. And a an inspirational group of leaders who are part of that community, and it started in officially in two thousand nine. Bo Burlingham, who who became a friend very shortly after I read the book and reached out to him while I was still in Germany, and asked him to come over and give a speech around this concept of small giants, which I which I immediately resonated with, and I wanted sort of my business community to listen to the author talking about it. So we got him over to. Germany, and we went on a little tour of of some speaking engagements um, for about a week and a week and a half, and we became very good friends during that time. And he invited me back to the conference, which I'd never been to before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that distinctly because it was 2007 in Washington, and during the last day of the conference, all the Inc. 500, uh, all the people who were on the Inc. 500 list Mm-hmm. Got a present from American Express, who were rolling out. Do, do you still have the plum card? The no, plum colored. I don't card. think we. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an Amex guy, but yeah. Okay. Well, I Amex the brought plum card. Yeah. Sure. Well, Amex rolled. We're rolling it out in 2007, and they had a gift for every single person in the um, in the auditorium. Yes. Which was a, a brand new iPhone, which had wow. just literally just hit the market and wow. i remember that distinctly so that was 2007 um and in 2009 a group of friends who had sort of coalesced around Bo and the book um a number of whom had been portrayed in the book um decided that we needed to do more than just meet at inc 500 conference and have a good dinner but we should do something about this and we 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 met in Ann Arbor at Zingerman's, which yes, you may famous, have heard of Zingerman's, yeah, sure. famous sure. deli and yeah. food business. Yes, Ari Weinswag and his partner, Paul Snagenar, were our hosts, and they were mm-hmm. also featured in the book. And in fact, I think if you ask Bo, he will say they were the inspiration for the book and this whole idea of, of running a business differently based on developing the culture rather than growth per se. Um, and Ari entertained us for two and a half days in uh, in Ann Arbor, during which we wrote a vision of what we wanted the Small Giants community to be. Mm-hmm. And that was in May of 2009. And since then, it's sort of grown. It's had a sort of period at the beginning when it was, you know, we had a lot of fun and it was, it was a rapid growth and everybody who had read the book coalesced around it. And we had a sort of phase where it didn't really do very much. And in the last, I'd say, five years, we've had a new sort of management team running the organization 
and they've done it from Detroit and they've done a fantastic job. It's a really and, and vibrant tell us community. what it is exactly. So like, and can anyone join it? And like, what is it? What's the elevator pitch for small giants? It's um, well, the, it's the elevator pitch is the subtitle of the book. It's for companies that choose to be great instead of big. Gotcha. So it's a, it is a, um, it's about creating an organization that Bo refers to as intimate or human scale mm-hmm. instead of going hell for leather or for as much growth as you can get. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's for leaders and their organizations who are interested primarily in preserving and building out the culture mm-hmm. and growing at a pace that doesn't damage or um, interfere with the intimacy of the culture. I think that's that's great. I love it. So, what um, do you have any in, insight into what percent of those businesses are either family owned or run, or have a strong family focus to them? I'm going to throw the question back at you and yeah. ask: What do you mean by? family focus does that mean it yeah. has to be with a with the idea of handing it on to the next generation or where there are current members of the family involved in the organization yeah what does family mean so family run or family owned or uh i would say or as more than one family member involved in the business and so that could uh, be a husband and wife absolutely definitely that's a family business and and i think family focus is a lot of businesses want to show that they have what I think you would describe as like family values. And that family values means that they have a strong culture of loyalty to their employees. They treat their uh, their people like family. And I think that this is a double-sided, uh, uh, like a blessing and a curse, because I think it can get you into trouble uh, a little bit because loyalty that's misplaced can be very damaging to a culture as I'm, you're shaking your head. I'm sure you agree. Well, we could, we could have a whole podcast or two <laughs> yes. just on the dangers that companies get in or the problems that companies get into when they, when they mix the two systems, family and business. Right. So, and I've, I've seen this in, in sort of patriarchal companies you know, we're very wealthy business owners, but they don't have to be wealthy. They just need mm-hmm. to be old and mm-hmm. st- stubborn and reasonably successful. And what they will do is they will mix the two value systems. Right. So they will they will they will treat employees in a way that they they will treat their employees like family members, and they yes. will treat their family members like employees. And there is a lot of psychological research that's gone or systemic research gone into why families are different from fundamentally different from businesses. And mm-hmm. that if you start mixing or conflating the two, then you get into tremendous difficulty because nobody really knows who they are anymore in the system. Right. And, and elderly patriarchs are, are, are the worst of all at doing this. They, 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 they mix up, all the systems, you know, they can, and it can lead to you know, children, the real children, you know, feeling so dispossessed that, that they've 
get suicidal. You know, this, this can lead to tremendous difficulty. So I'm very wary of the this sort of cuddly idea that somehow a business and a family are the same thing and that you could treat all your employees like family members. I think family values of of respect and decency and 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 some sort of equanimity they have their place in a business but business a really sound business culture will recognize that it's run on entirely different rules yeah and you, and have, to, think, you have to know them yeah and i think i mean one of the one of the exercises that i've taken my clients through that i think helps with that is um, especially if I'm dealing with the the patriarch, is to put them into the organization chart on on a you know a physical written chart or virtual on a on a software, and let them see the different boxes or seats that they sit in, and let them speak from the position of I'm speaking to you as you know the director of sales, or I'm speaking to you as the owner of this business. Or I'm speaking to you as as you as your father um, in this situation, and kind of be clear where you're coming from. I, I find it so important when I'm transitioning or helping a, a company transition from one generation to the next that the patriarch or matriarch speaks from the the and clarifies the place that they're speaking from. I think that absolutely. helps absolutely. And if you um, if you get that wrong, it causes chaos. Mm-hmm. It's just chaos in the yeah. in the systemic relationship structure of both the family and yeah. the business. It's yeah. very very unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and I think coaches and leadership coaches can do both the family and the business a great service by helping navigate that that minefield, especially if it's sort of grown up over 20, 30 years and it's already well established, sort of unpicking it and putting it back in its place again is probably one of the best things that a, a leadership coach could do with a patriarch or yeah. So I, that. I think this is a good segue to talk about visioning and the visioning process that yeah. you use. I mean, we, we had an earlier conversation about it. I think it sounded very interesting. Um, I'd love it if you could describe uh, a little bit about that visioning process uh, that you go through with, with yeah, clients. Yeah, love to do that. I've, I first discovered it from that meeting in Ann Arbor in 2009 um, from Ari, who who put us through this process of, of visioning where we wanted to be with the organization in five years' time. And, and Ari has, uh, Ari learned this method from, a consultant that was uh, very close to the University of Michigan, where there's a very well-respected organizational psychology department. Um, that consultant, a guy called Stas Kazmierski, um, came into the organization, Zingerman's, at a fairly late stage, but was responsible for establishing visioning as a key leadership tool. And I believe, and if you ask Ari, he will tell you that this this tool by itself has been one of the strongest um, levers that he's had in he and his partner have had in actually shaping the organization and mm. driving it forward. And what is it? Well, everybody sort of knows what a vision is roughly. It's some sort of idea about the future. But the way that um, the way that organization psychologists have created this process around it, it's very specific. And it is a narrative in text, in prose, 
written in the present tense at a very specific time in future, let's say five years on the 15th of November, 2025 or 2026, we are going to be envisioned, we're in a partnership and we say, let's just envisage what success is for us, how we mm -hmm. define that, how will we know if we've been successful? And you and I would sit down and we would both write as much as possible, as fast as possible, get it out of our heads and hearts into prose, and then spend a couple of weeks kicking it backwards and forwards so that both of us in our joint venture were absolutely clear on what success means for us. And if you wanted to have, you know, if, if whatever our business venture was, if your idea was to have a continent-wide franchise system, and I wanted to have a, you know, for me, success was just having a single store specialty, yeah. highly profitable lifestyle business, well, then we would figure that out very quickly because right. our intentions would be entirely different. So the idea is to get out that sort of, that woolly, unclear, emotional stroke, aspirational idea of what the entrepreneur thinks is how he would define success and make that visible for the rest of the organization and the community of people surrounding the organization so yeah. that everybody knew where we were going. And to do that in detail, it has to be inspiring. It has to be uh, in a sort of narrative form. So you have to be able to read it. It's usually somewhere between five and seven pages if you've done it properly, sometimes longer. Mm -hmm. Just finished one with a client who's went to 21 pages and it's fantastic. Wow. wow. So it's a really readable exciting document that has already moved the needle on that particular business's relationship with the town. They're in a big city. Um, and for the very first time, the city officials who are responsible for grants and for, for supporting the business can now see what the business owners see as far as that area is concerned. And if you do it well, it it, it is not only inspiring, but it's also effectively the logical extrapolation of the business model so it's it's got a hard core mm -hmm. which is the financial reality of the business model sure wrapped in this aspirational what sort of business do we want and what sort of impact have we had and and how does it work and and, and how does our what's our reputation and what sort of customers do we have and where are we and how many people are we and what sort of a culture do we aspire to and because you make all that visible and then share it with the organization so that everybody has a chance to contribute to it in the business, you then have this, this, um, this vision document that everybody has had a chance to contribute to and has been asked to contribute to so that everybody knows where the you know, where the journey is go heading towards. So you've got I a think, destination. Think, yeah, you've got a destination map, and it's a fantastic leadership tool because it. So just, I think this is great. I, I want to dive into this a little bit more because I've done yeah. much of this in my own personal life at, at personal development workshops, whether they be with, uh, oh, I don't know, Tony Robbins or Jack Canfield or Har T. Harbecker, or just personal optimum performance type personal uh, development workshops, where you actually write out in the future state, in the future, yeah, in a future state, um, you know, what does your life look like or what does your business look like? So I think it's a great exercise. I, I really highly recommend this exercise for partners so that they can make sure they're on the same page with each other. What you've just 
said and shared with me is that you get a lot more than just the partners or the founders to contribute to this document. And I, and I want to ask how you do that, but I also want to ask what techniques or tactics or, or tools do you use for people who are stuck? They have trouble coming up with the vision. They Absolutely. just, they, I mean, we see, I see this all the time in my coaching, right? You know, it's like, I ask like, give me three, give me some specific measurable results that you want to achieve in three, six, 12 months from now. And some people can fill out a long, you know, two pages. Some people are just like three items. So. And, and some people find it so difficult that they just shut down because it's completely yeah. counterintuitive to the way that they run the business. And there are many entrepreneurs, and I will answer your question very specifically, but many mm -hmm. entrepreneurs are visionary, but yes. actually their visioning is more like a lot of self-confidence and optimism that the future mm -hmm. is going to be better than the past. Don't ask me any details. It's just going to be great. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and if you say, well, what does great mean? then they collapse because that's not how they that's not how they run their world they run mm -hmm. their world very opportunistically how do i know what's going to come up next week or next month or tomorrow and i'll figure it out when i get there mm -hmm. that you can do that but you can't bring anybody along on that journey Correct. other than through absolute loyalty and belief in your genius mm -hmm. which is a you know which is a great place to be if you want to be there but it's not a very sustainable um, way of, of making people autonomous within the business because they know exactly where you're going. So mm -hmm. the three things there are three things that I do with all visionary leaders or people who are going through this process with me. And by the way, it takes about four to five months mm -hmm. to get this process mm. completely done. So this is not something you can do on an afternoon workshop and we're done. Right, right. The, re Which the real the real work is in the iteration. Yeah, sure. I've done okay. these in the afternoon workshops and you don't come out with that much. And then you end up looking at it maybe a few months later and you think, oh, that was pretty much garbage. Yeah. Uh, not, so, not well, three things. Number one, and I suspect this is the most important of the, the steps. Number one, write down everything that is wrong, challenging, difficult, problematic, frustrating about the business today. Mm-hmm. Because a vision is nothing other than a change management process mm -hmm. or a document. So the change state that you're envisioning will be automatically and logically the solution to all today's problems. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you're writing down all the problems. You're not sorting them in any particular order. And then writing a sentence opposite them. So you get a bit of paper, column down the middle, mm -hmm. or two or three, and you just write down every single problem that you've got. And business people are really, really good at dumping a catalog of all the things that are frustrating them. And sure. they, 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 there is no issue with that whatsoever. Right. Exactly. Where they need a little bit of help, just one or two exercises, just to show them what I mean, is to turn that on its head, mm -hmm. to invert it. Yeah. So I've got, you know, today I have, we only have one major supplier and he's, he charges us too much and he's unreliable. Right. And the inverse of that, we have a full range of suppliers with whom we have working, trusting relationships right. with excellent pricing and we, we and and just in time delivery. 
Tell me about that. <laughs> so you would so you would sit down, you go through every single one of the problems you've listed and mm-hmm. write the inverse. Yes. I love that. That's great. Like what if then, the opposite were the case? What's the, what the, what's the opposite like? of the case? Because yeah. effectively change management is taking an unsatisfactory situation mm-hmm. and turning it into a satisfactory one. So if mm-hmm. you to aggregate all of your unsatisfactory situations, you automatically get a a picture like a jigsaw puzzle with quite a few of the bits filled in yes. of what an ideal situation would look like. Let's say you've got a crappy culture. Well, then you, you would describe in some detail what a happy culture looks like mm-hmm. and so on. Or you, mm-hmm. your profitability is miserable. And then you write down what good profitability looks like. Great. So that's the first exercise. And that fills in an awful lot of blanks. Mm-hmm. Because what we then do is take each one of those and start grouping them under headings. You know, there'll be sure. supply chain issues and there'll be culture issues and management mm-hmm. issues and financial issues and all sorts of things. So you've got chapters are starting to form mm-hmm. just by you writing down all your problems and inverting them. So that's number mm-hmm. one. Number two, I tell ask the business leaders to write down 10 to 20 attributes of a business in their business field that a, a successful business needs to do really well. In other words, I ask the question, what does a successful business in your field have to do really well in order to be very successful? Mm-hmm. And by doing that, what they're doing is benchmarking themselves. Mm-hmm. They're creating, they're creating a, a, an anonymous benchmark by saying, because most people, are, you know, once it's not about them, they can say, okay, what does a really good competitor look like? Well, they're really good at supply chain or they're really good at manufacturing efficiency or they're really good at marketing or whatever it is. And then you get these sort of 20, 18, 15 key attributes. And then I ask them to score themselves today Mm -hmm. and where they think they're going to be at the point of visioning and where they were two years ago. And then you've Mm. got this, you've got, you can, they can start seeing areas of progress on a scale of zero to 10. Right. And that then becomes the map because the vision document will describe what it feels like to be in a first-class organization based on their own criteria. So they will so be able they, to... Are they prioritizing each of these areas in stage they tend to they, they, they tend to be... Um, they tend to be grouped. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of personnel issues and supply chain issues. And yeah. so that, that there's not really a... A hierarchy so much okay. as a map of got things it. that they've got to do in their entirety. So right. that's the third thing. And the third thing I will do is is to ask them what the guiding principles or values of the business are, mm. and to tell me. And so they write them down. So let's say there are five values. They're usually fairly boring or not particularly right. well thought out or superficial. And mm-hmm. I say, okay, if you live those values over the visioning period, how do I know that? How do I know that those are your values? How have those values made a difference mm-hmm. in the organizational culture? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, well, how, do, how do you, how do you, um, how do I know that those are your values and what's the compound effect of living them over the next four or five years? That's slightly more difficult, but at the end of the day, each one of those values has got some sort of implicit behaviors and principles embedded in them that have a real practical 
implication on the culture of the business. So logically, you should be able to say, well, if you keep living this value for the next five years and insisting on it and you know, using it as a, as a tool to measure behavioral acceptance, then it should have this consequence. And you can sort of pick five or six. And now you've got the future state of the business due to its values. You've got the future state of the business based on the benchmark of excellence. And you've got the future state of the business against as the, as the, as the answer to all of today's problems. And with all of that information, you suddenly get a picture. And that picture then needs to be put into the language that the, the owner of the business is comfortable with. And then the business model has to work. So you've got all these sort of various bits and pieces mm. coming in. You can see most leaders have attention deficit disorder. Right. So they can't do this for longer than an hour without getting bored. Right. Which is why it takes three to four months because I, I said we do this an hour a week and we'll move, the, we'll move it forward. And after three months, we've got, you know, we will have a, we've got enough draft and they've got used to it. And once they can see it in, on paper, something magic happens. Once they can see their own language and their own narrative and they can read it, then it suddenly starts to make sense to them. And then they start engaging with it and playing with it. And it takes maybe two or three weeks of more work. And then it's ready to go into the organization. And then there are two phases. Phase number one, they bring the sort of next level of management or the sort of the inner circle, give them their draft and get them to give really hard feedback. What's missing? What have we missed? What's mm-hmm. not exi- inspiring enough? You know, what doesn't make sense? That usually yields a lot of sort of um, gaps in the narrative. Yeah, where people have said, you know, we need to think about this, or you haven't forgot, you haven't mentioned this, or what about this area? And that then sort of fills it with their content, and then you take it in the sort of next step, depending on how large the organization is, to the broader group, and. At that point, you can either create slice teams, which are groups of people from every part of the organization, and get them together to work on the vision. And depending on how large the organization is, that can take another two or three weeks. And when that's ready, then you send it to maybe three or four intimate advisors who are not in the business, who you trust as a leader, and say, what do you think of this? And when that's done and they've given their feedback, which always yields some valuable insights, then they have to publish it. And the publishing means is actually physically either putting it into a book form, Mm -hmm. putting it on the internet, on their webpage. And then there's a really important part, which is to celebrate it and manifest it, to have a sort of vision launch party with a t-shirt or a hat and a poster, because what needs to happen is that the, the vision needs to stay to, to be visible throughout the next few years. It mustn't disappear somewhere. So by having a physical manifestation and getting the team to come up with an idea of, I don't know, a teddy bear or a hat or a T-shirt and celebrating it and making sure that those sort of artifacts of the vision are constantly visible in the office space, that's the way that you get the buy-in and, and move it forward. So it's a, it becomes a very intimate idea of what success looks like for us in the business. And my experience has been, and I'll finish, has been that the more work that's put into that vision and creating a really clean, inspiring, strategically sound narrative, 
the more likely the business is to not only achieve it, but exceed it and it before time. Wow. I love your description of this whole visioning process and uh, how you've elaborated on a process that I've intuitively done, but at a much smaller scale and not as orchestrated. And so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of um, course. And that's a far ways from where I thought we were going to be talking about, which is <laughs> finance. And so uh, how do we weave? The, well, finance you know, is a we really important part. Into this? Yeah, yeah, well, it's yeah. really important because the vision is, imagine it's like a peach. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a sort of soft narrative on the outside, which is a right. touchy-feely, touchy-feely and it's, it's, it's emotional and it's intimate and it's mm-hmm. descriptive. But in the center of it, there has to be a rock-hard mm-hmm. business model validation. Mm-hmm. It has to work for, as a financial model. And I have this sort of joke or saying, which is that a, the business plan, you know, the five-year business plan that Excel will spit out for you in an afternoon, mm-hmm. the, five-year, the five-year business plan or any business plan that goes into the future is the love child between a business model and a vision. Mm-hmm. If you mate a vision and a business model, you will get the plan. If you do the plan without reference to the vision, then it's just numbers. And gotcha. if you do the business, if you do it without reference to the business model, then it's just stupid. So you have to have you have to have the financial understanding of what the business vision that you've created actually means in terms of getting there. Right. So, so tell me a little more detail. So in the vision, is there a discussion of what your Finance? gross margins? Absolutely. Your, That's a your, core, you know, are we looking core at, part. Are there a lot of ratios that are in like that? that there might be in there. Yeah. So it might even talk about your working capital ratios. We were talking about absolutely. Earlier, or, um, you know, how much cash is on, I mean, obviously you probably would say, well, how much cash is in the bank? How much cash, uh, what's the value of our balance sheet on? You, you, know, you, you would say something, you would, you would say, you would say something like, yeah. you know, in year five, we, we, we are, we're proud of having, of being, of having repaid all our startup loans. Right. Yeah. We now have at least eight months cash in the bank. Right. Um, our gross margins have, have moved from, from 48% to 63%. And, you know, you will be very specific about right. what financial success looks like because there's no point in having a business vision if it doesn't include a measure of financial success, because otherwise it's just, it's just fantasy. Okay. So what level of resistance do you get from clients? Now, I know you have probably some entrepreneurial clients and they're, uh, well, some of them you said are ADD, or many of them are most. And so they're driven by that resistance, which is I got to get back to work. This is like, you know, sort of like sandbox playing. And then there's some people who are just probably going to have a lot of resistance. I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of time invested in this. It's a very woo-woo kind of a, an exercise no, it's not. for some. No, yeah. no, 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 it's, no, it's so, not the way I do it. It isn't because okay. I, I can tell you, I've been chairman of a number of public companies. Mm-hmm. I know how to deal with my, my CEOs. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, it's a, I always tell them, listen, just for the next four to five months, I'm your chairman. Mm-hmm. And you and I are going to have a conversation that you need to have with me as your chairman because I've mm-hmm. got a board 
that I need to get on board. Mm -hmm. And so you need to be as honest as possible with me, and mm -hmm. it's going to hurt. There's, I say quite frankly up front, there are phases on the next three months that are really going to hurt because it's not something that you're used to doing. And it, particularly for entrepreneurs of the, there are two different types. There's the entrepreneur that sets up goals and knocks yes. them out. Yeah. So the, the future becomes a series of, so a five-year future becomes a series of 20 quarterly goals. Mm-hmm. And all I'm saying is, why don't you just start at the end mm -hmm. and work the goals back from there right? rather than just putting up the goals and saying, I'm going to do this quarter's goals and next quarter's goals and next quarter's goals. And yeah. there are some people who are really good at that and who find starting with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey called it, mm -hmm. really difficult. But once they've understood it, they can then sort of create the goal series, reverse engineer it backwards. And there are others who, for whom the future is always a sort of unicorn-shaped, fluffy, beautiful place where they're driving a Ferrari and they've got their yacht, but they can't actually be specific about it. Right. And they're not very good at goals either, but they're very charismatic and they're really good at sort of getting people enthusiastic. For them and for the others, there are different challenges, but I say to them, you know, it's going to hurt because this requires a level of specificity that is going to be is going to mature you as a leader because going from short term goals or short term enthusiasm to long range planning and stating what it is that you actually want what success means for you and stopping the entrepreneur from saying well how am i going to get it because the the how question is irrelevant in the vision the how is what you figure out once once you've created the vision Mm -hmm. That's the job of sort of day-to-day -day operations. Mm. And getting them to ignore that is basically why, and I'm going to say this with all humility, why I'm really good at this and why others may find it more difficult. Because mm. I've, you know, I'm I I feel myself in the role of chairman, mm -hmm. and my job is to get that vision out of them, come what may. You know, it's like giving birth. I'll get mm -hmm. it out if they keep if they keep pushing. So would you recommend, so for people who wanted to get started on this process, um, would you recommend they read Ari Weizen, what is Weinswag's, it, Weinswag's book on Zingerman's yeah. uh, Deli? And uh, I mean, yeah. it's like a manifesto, as I recall. Uh, was it like a well, there, there, there are a number of resources that um, mm -hmm. they can tap into. Mm -hmm. I write about visioning in my newsletter and mm -hmm. on my webpage quite a lot. Okay. Um, and on LinkedIn, they can sort of, and I write about all this stuff regularly. Okay. They can, they can buy um, Ari's book from mm -hmm. the zingtrain.com um, website. And he, right. he's written, he's written a series of four books. And it's number one that you need. And that has two essays on visioning. Mm -hmm. And that's a sort of, do-it-yourself version, which is mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. The I do not believe from years of doing this, I do not believe that an entrepreneur or a business owner will do the visioning process by himself I agree. so that it so that it works. I, I just don't you can do it and you don't need me and I've got enough resources that you can do it by yourself. Right. The reason that we exist as coaches mm -hmm. is because they need somebody to guide them through 
keep the discipline going and who will take some of the work off them. Yeah. It's yeah. That simple. So they can subscribe to you and they can find you at Stephen with a V at, at yeah, good Stephen and at good and prosper.com. Yeah. Okay. Or Stephen with a V again, Wilkinson um, on LinkedIn. And yeah. so do you have a tool that, that, uh, you make available you share with people that's a basic tool that gets them sort of gets their feet wet a little bit or uh, um in the visioning i i don't but okay. I'm, I'm i'm working on one at the moment and if people are interested listening to your podcast um and they they're interested in having it then if i get more than one dm that says right. i'd like to have that i'll right. do it sounds good <laughs> awesome yeah well this has been a wonderful conversation and uh I think it's so instructive and i'm going to go back i know and listen to this so that i really understand each of those three steps in the process um and maybe we can just repeat and revisit them it's the the first step is kind of do a what's not working kind of uh, uh problem list yeah deep deep list then the second is to sort of group them into different areas as i understood and create like what it would look like if uh you know and this is where you're benchmarking against uh maybe the best uh what it would look like to have all these areas working great and help me with the third step the values right the incorporating values. right which is really a, that was a leap of faith for me to like okay how do we connect our purpose and our values um and how do they get lived such that we're it make a difference ex, it make a difference but that we're ex, executing on this vision is really what i think um, well, the, well the, the vision becomes well, part of the vision itself oh, be, so is 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 the answer to the question if we yes. live our values how does that over five years how does that affect how the business looks got it got it because okay. if, it, if it doesn't affect it at all then why bother Got it. Yeah. Wow. Love to read the 21 page dissertation that your client wrote on his. Yeah, well, his her, I, it's quite a, it would be like, that'd be quite a feat, but I get how you want to keep it down to a handful of pages. And are there examples of companies besides uh, Zingerman's um, where they've done this type of a thing, maybe even intuitively before, uh, you know, before people started to call it visioning processes. And I mean, let's not go back to the Greek gods or the, uh, you know, the Roman empire. Um, but maybe. Yeah, for sure. And any, yeah, sure. any, any time a business sets out its, its idea for the future. I mean, right. The, the Apple has been, you know, instrumental has really? been, yeah. it's been brilliant at doing that. Yes. Yeah. Now, whether they have a formal document that meets the criteria that mm -hmm. I would describe to a vision, mm -hmm. you know, this a vision is a very loose term and some people mix it up with vision or mission or strategy. Yeah. I have a very specific idea and I, and most of the people that I've worked with actually publish their vision on their, um, on their yeah. websites. Wow. Because, because making it public is part of the commitment. I get that. I mean, they always teach you in these workshops that I've been to, like, if you're going to state some future goals, like declare it in an affirmative language, put it out there, share it with others, 
um, which is part of the process of building like an accountability team around Absolutely. you to help you to make yeah. it happen. So, so, um, so none of this is none of this is really new. And anybody who's sort of spiritually yeah. organized knows that that uh, the power of prayer and the power of the law of attraction are all based on being clear about what you want in the future. Yeah. And this is the business version of that. Yeah. In- interesting. So super interesting. Love it. I mean, we just barely touched on finance stuff, but like I I think about the early days of business planning back in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I think I used to start with just the finance section because it was for me, it was like, let's get the numbers down and then we'll figure out how we're going to get the marketing and the operations. And it always fascinated me because I'd have a colleague and he'd go, no, no, let's get the marketing down and then figure out what the finance that flows out of this. And um, so these were early early examples of us helping our clients uh, come up with visions for their business. And so, yeah. And it, and it was always Excel based. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I never saw a business plan that lost money on paper. Um, didn't make sense. Right. But, uh, or it would lose money. I, and, I, and I never saw one in the, in the sort of startup arena. I don't really have very much to do with startups, yeah. but I never saw one that didn't end up after five years having in cash, the gross national product of Ecuador on its balance sheet. Yeah, quite, quite interesting. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, great. Thank you so much, All Jonathan. Right. This has been really fun. Stephen, thanks so much for being on the show. And folks, I hope you will share this uh, with people that can benefit from it. And stay tuned for future episodes of the Disruptive Successor Show. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, Please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.